And we are live uh, for another episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say that I'm here with Dr. Vincent Esposito. He is a board certified chiropractor. He's a breathwork uh, practitioner. Um, He is an author uh, of uh, a fabulous cookbook, which I read before we came on. He's he's very interested in in gardening. Uh, Vincent Esposito, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, likewise. Thank, thank you for having me on, Richard. I really appreciate it. No, I, I appreciate it. So I was reading some of your backstory and how you got into this world of, of wellness and health uh, before we came in on, but for the benefit of the audience, yeah, wh- where did this, this passion, this interest start for you? Um, yeah, so for me, um, you know, a lot of it, I, I think most people who end up going like this type of route, it kind of ends up choosing you more than you choose it. So, um, you know, for me, I was going into college. I, I ended up playing a sport in college and um, I ended up working for the strength and conditioning coach. So like my job on campus was I kind of worked as an assistant trainer. And originally, like what I wanted to do is I want to go into sports medicine. I want to go like into rehab. So like working with ideally athletes who were coming off of injuries and, and kind of helping them get back on. That was why I went to chiropractic school. Uh, but while I was at, or while I was during my undergrad experience, I kind of like developed some health issues I never had before. So I put on, I would say between my freshman and sophomore years, probably like 20, 25 pounds. I developed and I, at the time, I thought it was all like muscle mass for the most part. I was like, I was working out more. I'm playing a sport. I was like, whatever. But and I thought it was all good. But at the same time, like these things I never experienced, like were happening. Like I was dealing with like pretty consistent bouts of constipation, specifically uh, brain fog was definitely a big thing. Uh, energy was definitely a big thing for me, especially because I'm a morning person. So I'm always up early. I always took the early classes, et cetera. So like when I was not kind of bouncing back as as neatly as I liked, that kind of really pushed me the wrong way and and I didn't feel great about it. Uh, seasonal allergies kind of developed and I kind of just went through it. I figured I was just like getting older. These things happen. I say that I was like 19, 20 years old <laughs> at the time. Um, and like, you know, I just kind of, it just happened, stayed with me um, when I went to chiropractic school. But my second year, I think it was my second year, I ended up taking, we had to take biochemistry as a course, and it was taught by a naturopathic doctor, and she just kind of taught it a much different way than I learned it in undergrad. And she focused, she like taught it through a lens of food and nutrition in a way I didn't remember learning it in the past. Mm. And it just was much more interesting to me. So that kind of pushed me to take get a a master's degree kind of at the same time in nutrition when I while I was still at that school so I was kind of getting both of them like concurrently and about a year into that program I decided and I was kind of getting into I was looking into some other stuff um I was reading into like things like the blue zones and the china study and and some other like big more epidemiological stuff as far as like where to go what to do and at some point I'm like, all right, I'm taking all this. I still am dealing with like these issues that developed in college. You know, why not be like your own patient zero? So that's essentially what happened. Like more or less, my sleep schedule was basically the same. My workout routine was more or less, it was different, but like the amount of time and effort that was going in was essentially the same. I would say stress levels were roughly the same. So really what was changing was what I was eating. Um, and I would say within like a month or two, uh, all the digestive issues went away. The energy came back, the brain fog went away, uh, the caffeine or like the need for it disappeared. Um, and I would say probably within five or six months, all that weight I put on just like pretty much came off, uh, again, with no extra effort, no calorie counting, anything like that. Um, and at this point I was getting close to the time to graduate and you know, all that time I was putting into like wanting to go into sports med and rehab. I was like, 
you know what? Like if I just have like a little information and I'm learning about this stuff and I could change this dramatically, like to me, that is much more interesting. And I think a much more powerful message for more people. And basically I, that's when I just started hit the ground running with that and going with that. Right. Well, that's pretty amazing story. Uh, yeah. That sounds like a very w- rapid uh, weight loss. What was the, yeah. What were the principles you were using? Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, I, I think the biggest book that made it different that resonated with me was the China study specifically because it was so many people um, and, and just kind of how it wasn't like dogmatic in any way. It just kind of was like, hey, like these are the patterns and this is what we're seeing. So I was like, OK, let's just do that. So basically, I mean. I know this is weird. This is going to sound weird, but like dairy was never a big thing for me. So cutting that out was pretty straightforward. Um, I really scaled back on the amount of, of meat I was eating at the time. So that went from, you know, two, three times a day to like two, three times a week. And then I, I continued to scale back further from that. Um, and then really it was a lot of the, the rest of the process stuff. Um, Alcohol was a big thing. Not to say that I don't have a drink ever at this point, but it's gone from multiple times a week to maybe once a month, if that. Uh, so, you know, you know, and that's like one drink. So that was a big change. Um, those I'd say were the primary things like scaling back more towards whole plant foods um, and, and getting rid of much more of kind of like the acidic kind of mucus forming stuff. So that would be the biggest shift. Right, right. And for those people who are not familiar with the the China study, what were the main findings of that? Uh, Oh, there was a lot. So it was done by, uh, he's a PhD at Cornell. He might still be teaching. His name's T. Colin Campbell. But basically what he did, he went in and was kind of surveying a lot of different, uh, I would say like rural Chinese neighborhoods or, or communities. And was kind of comparing them in certain health outcomes. And basically what he was finding, and there were a lot of different like demographic type issues too. So, you know, wealthier neighborhoods versus poorer ones, et cetera. And he was finding again, transit, like this similarity of like ones that tended to be more plant focused or had less access to animal foods for whatever reason, tended to not suffer from the same Western illnesses that you and I might hear say like in the UK or, or in America, especially. Um, so, you know, you don't see the cancer risk. You don't see the diabetes, the overweight, the kidney disease, um, you know, the heart disease, like the, these were essentially like non-existent for, for these folks in those areas who, who just were kind of fine. They weren't told to do anything. This was just kind of how they lived. Um, you know, a, a high protein, same thing. So like I, a much higher protein intake was associated with a lot of the stuff too. Uh, so that I found was like very interesting. And those were, I mean, the general tenets of it. Uh, and and just you, you were seeing like, again, the more kind of detached, the more uh, they were kind of focusing in that way. They just did not suffer from a lot of the things that we see like here in these Western, more mo- modernized, you know, countries. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and the other one you mentioned was Blue Zone. What was that? Yeah, so a little bit similar. Um, it was written by this guy, Dan Butner, who is not a scientist at all. He's a journalist. Uh, he basically found these pockets of people around the world. That, so there's one in California, surprisingly. There's one in Italy. There's one in like Costa Rica, Okinawa, Japan. Uh, there's a couple others. Costa Rica, there's one. And basically, like these pockets of people who tend to live abnormally long compared to the average human being. So basically what he did, he kind of went to each of these areas and just kind of documented like what their lifestyle was like. And, you know, there were a lot of, I think, similar. And although, like, again, from a genetic standpoint, they're about as diverse as human beings could possibly be. So again, we're talking about Costa Rica, we're talking about Japan, Italy, America, like all over. So as far as genetic diversity, you're getting about as wide as you could possibly get on, on the human spectrum. And 
he found that like although like the specifics as far as like what these folks were eating was different like the general format was like more or less the same and again it it led a lot more towards like uh a plant heavy approach again not necessarily vegan uh although some were just for religious reasons but not all um and they they had an emphasis on being outside and community and uh, I think believing in something higher than them themselves, whether it's it was an outright religion or not, was different, but definitely like an emphasis on spirituality. Um, you know, movement, definitely a big thing. And, and I think revering elders is a big thing kind of in these communities, too. So basically, like the whole book is kind of like this amalgamation of each of these groups. And then what are the the common threads between them? Right. Uh Okay, that, and, and it's fascinating to think that this is across a, diff, a, a diverse, yeah, genetics, set of genetics, yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned about community um, as being a factor because I did read a study, I think it was a group, because you're Italian-American, right, or American-Italian. Yeah. There was two American-Italian communities where one was living longer than the other and they, they had the same diets and the same genetics or roughly the same genetics. And uh, they found that those that were eating together more uh lived lived longer i don't know if you're familiar with that study but not particularly that one but that is also actually something that they they um i know in the blue zones they talked about that a lot it, and it's another big part of that is like you know the the grandparents live with the children and they're like included and that that is a big part of it for sure i like that community aspect um i know nowadays is definitely you know overlooked um i i don't know about you i know what my parents that was like a big deal growing up. Uh, so, you know, it was just the four of us. I have one sibling. So, you know, we had to be home by like six for dinner. But other than that, like as long as we got like our schoolwork done and we go out and do whatever, but we had to be home for dinner. So I do think things like that have a lot more weight than they seem for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something about, well, the, the way I look at it, it's about the the state that you're in when you're consuming the food, right? The, presumably, there's a there's a big difference between you consuming food in a state of being where you're having fun and you're feeling connected and loved, and uh, than when you're yeah, like staring at the television. Absolutely, um, you know, uh, when I work with folks, that's you know a big thing. Like we have you know these two branches essentially of you know the autonomic nervous system. Uh, we have our parasympathetic and sympathetic and so many people are like stuck in this sympathetic dominant state and they're wondering like why they have issues with GERD or, you know, reflux or digestive issues in general. And honestly, like the amount of times like I get the answer yes to like, you know, are you eating in your car on the way to work? Are you watching like, you know, a slasher movie or like something violent while you're eating? No, seriously, like right <laughs> for for dinner uh, or, or you know sitting down or like are you rushing because you have you know an appointment that you're running late for and you know like that's going to keep you in this sympathetic state and i don't think people realize like when you're in the sympathetic dominant fight or flight type mode like 70 to 80 percent of the blood flow that would go to digestion is away from that it's it's getting moved away yeah. towards you know, the nervous system towards the muscles, because the idea is, oh, crap, like I have to survive for the next five minutes. Uh, when obviously, you know, it might be just an appointment you're late to. But at that point, like the the response more or less is the same. So it, it shouldn't necessarily be a surprise that like it's that common, but like you'd be surprised like at how often like simple things like just being present and sitting and like breathing when you're eating and not having the TV on. And not drinking like a ton of water with meals, like just that alone can reduce things like reflux really dramatically without any other intervention. And it's just, I think a lot of people are just kind of disconnected with how they feel. Right. And, and why is drinking water an issue? Some folks go like back and forth on this. And I've talked with like a bunch of colleagues about it. Um, so ideally, like when you're eating food, we have a, a stomach we have stomach acid right that's really acidic um ideally that ph should be somewhere between like one and a half and two and a half and it's really acidic like to the point like just for context like if 
this stomach acid is not, it was anywhere else in the body outside of the stomach. It would literally burn holes through whatever it is. So, and that's why the stomach specifically has the highest turnover rate of cells in the body. They only have, it's every like three to five days they're getting completely, you know, turned over. So it's an intense acidic environment and you need that to break proteins primarily down into amino acids. You need that to handle any environmental pathogens that might be coming in. Uh, And ideally, like a lot of them cannot handle that in acidic environment so they don't make it further down, you know, the digestive tract. When you're adding water, which ballpark has a pH of seven, uh, that's going to dilute that. So it's going to raise the pH, making it less acidic, closer to zero, closer to one, the more acidic you're going to be. Um, so when you're doing that, it, it's going to not allow the digestive process to be as efficient as it should be. If Same thing is going to happen, though, if you're stressed out. those The cells of the stomach are not going to produce as much acid, which is going to have a similar result. So either you're diluting it with a lot of water or or other fluids uh you know when you're drinking or uh you know you're stressed out and you're just not producing as much as you should at the given time those are like the two biggest ones that i see with reflux and usually like you have to start there honestly before any intervention unless you know something's going on or like uh, because it's just it's that simple and straightforward and right it, it makes a world of a difference you'd be surprised yeah, yeah, fascinating. And I tell you what, it reminds me when I was eighteen because I live in in the UK and I have a very sort of Anglo-Saxon of, of approach to food. Right, we would sit and have dinner, but it was like it wasn't the art form uh, that other countries make it. And I went to France when I was eighteen, and I can remember having my first meal there with the family and just being like, "Come on, it's like three <laughs> hours in, and we've not had pudding. What's going on?" And it would be like one course after the other and these big breaks between courses. Um, and it took, it, you know, it really took a while for me to get used to it. But once I did, like towards the end of my stay there, I was there a few months, I really started to appreciate it, right? It, yeah, and, and a very different approach to food. And, and I'm guessing, you know, the Italian traditions are similar. Yeah, um, I do think like in certain pockets, you get that. I mean, obviously here in America, everything is kind of geared towards the rat race a little bit. So it's tough. So you really have to be like intentional about it and have, you know, that buy in, I think, from like a young age. And I think that's anywhere Mm. now in a more like modernized area, especially like a city like you have to be make it a point and be intentional about it. Um, cause a lot of that stuff, like, again, it's, you're not really going to find it. I think in these areas, unless you, you make it a point to. Yeah. Yeah. As, as a, as part of a health regime, right? it's not just the quality of the food and the ingredients. It's the, it's the, the, the type of experience you're having. Yeah. It's yeah. literally yeah. how you're eating. Yeah. 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 How you're eating. Um, so if we. If we just talk a bit about like the the the, the principles, um, so you, so you said when you lost the, the the weight, you know, it was cutting down on alcohol, it was moving more towards a plant based place place a plant based diet, uh, and you you started to see these big shifts uh, in energy levels and, and weight and so on. Um, but just kind of broadening it out to where you're at now in terms of your of your understanding of nu- nutrition, what are like the the key tenets of of your approach now that you you bring to clients um i I would say they lean still more towards that uh where i start with folks usually and again you know i I understand like how confusing it gets and and there's a lot of it's not for a lack of information if anything it's i I believe like an inability to filter out Mm. um I would say it, it still is going to be plant forward. And, and, and in my opinion, like that is ultimately like what's going to lead to getting those detoxification pathways going. That's going to be your liver. That's going to be your kidneys, sweat, et cetera. Like if we're not eliminating and, and using bowel, the bowels as, as well as they should. I mean, I got a lot of folks who are going, you know, a couple times two three four times a week as opposed to like two three times a day and if that's happening that's a problem that's a real problem 
And like, you kind of have to get that sorted out first. So definitely like getting that, I find fruits particularly are incredibly hydrating because um, a, they contain like a very high amount of structured water. And I believe a lot of that's due to the electrolyte content. So, you know, and they're also the most like electrically active foods. And I think for that reason, so, you know, your sodium, potassium, uh, magnesium, calcium, chloride, those are like your five main electrolytes. And those are going to be primarily found in fruits. Not only that, um, I do believe the water content and the fiber in them are going to help strengthen the bowels so that they can stay moving. Um, I think it's also important to realize that so there was a study done. I've, I'm going to mess up the, the time. I want to say it was either 2008 or 2010. And I think it was at Wake Forest or Vanderbilt or somewhere in the U.S. Anyway, they took they gave one group of kids, I think it was college students, uh, basically your standard American, you know, pizza, whatever. Um, and, and then the other group was a more kind of plant forward one. And they basically what they did was they tracked the transit times of the food. And what they found was for the food to get from the mouth, essentially to the colon took around 14 hours, I believe, for like the standard American, you know, the the pizza, burgers, right. et cetera. And for the plant-based stuff, it took around 90 minutes. So why is that important? Well, the thing is, like, if you're constantly putting that in and it's in there for too long, you are going to get essentially this putrefi- putrefication. Um, right. And, you know, that's going to lead and breed to things like fungi, mold, different types of parasites, et cetera, that are going to then come with their own list of potential issues down the road. So that to me becomes like a big part of it. So it's really about, you know, focusing particularly on the whole foods and like the whole fruits and plants. I think that has to be at the forefront, um, largely because like, if you look at the context of like how I think humans kind of grew up, uh, evolved over time, you know, that's primarily like what, the species that look close to us get to and and ultimately like kind of what we thrive on. So that's like the basic tenants. And a lot of it's just kind of transitioning to that, depending on where the person's at, that could be a little bit faster or slower, uh, depending on buy-in depend more. It's more social factors. It's do yeah. you live with someone? Usually I find that's the biggest actually roadblock. It's not even the person, which it can be. It's the spouse. It's the husband or wife. It's the, you know, blaming it on the kids because they won't eat it. Or it's usually there's other social factors that they say are, are the harder part, I find. Well, that's that's very interesting. And that's certainly been my experience because before I got kids, I was like super into a lot of this and I was probably 80% raw vegan mm-hmm. uh, and and really strict. And then kids came along <laughs> and it all just got blown out the window. Uh, yeah, because your hormones are all over the place. You're stressed. The kids won't eat any of this stuff. Your partner's definitely not eating any of this. So, yeah, I've, I'm getting back towards it now. Uh, but it's, um, yeah, I found that hugely disruptive and, and, and way harder to stick to the disciplines with, uh, with kids than, than previously. Yeah, it, it is hard. I get it. Um, it. You know, there are ways I think you can go about it. I, I think, like, there are ways you could try to, like, gamify this stuff or create, like, an illusion of choice with kids. Um, obviously like, listen, I'm not going to sit here and say like, it's something you do overnight. What I will say, you know, generally speaking, the earlier you could get to them, the easier it is. Yeah. Um, and of course I think kids are really smart. You definitely have to be the example. Cause if you're not, they're going to call you on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That makes sense. And so what are some of the tricks you found that's work, work with kids then? Um, Again, I like the illusion of choice. So you can kind of, you could say, for example, say you want to do like a taco night and you could create like, um, you know, you could do like, I don't know, I'm just going to make this up, but like a mushroom filling or like some sweet potatoes or, you know, roasted vegetables. And then you have, you know, like some carrot, cabbage or peppers or shredded carrots or whatever. And you have them kind of all laid out like in different bowls. And you could say, hey, like you can choose this or that 
or you can choose and you kind of like say like, oh, I'd rather this than that. Or you can try that. So like there's I find that is probably like the most effective way to do it. I also think like getting kids involved. And this is something I wish I did more when I was a kid was um, get them involved, like in the kitchen. Um, You know, I I have a, a friend of mine who runs a program who works with parents and and children to get them in the kitchen like at an early age and like has actually courses for you know teaching kids knife skills at like age three which is i think really cool so getting them involved in part of the process i think is is really good too yeah yeah no that makes a lot of sense I also get my kids to actually in the growing because we have like a small vegetable patch and like i've had my kids like plant the carrot seeds and then a few months later i've been like hey hey why don't you have the carrot you grew <laughs> and he's like <laughs> no, i still want a biscuit i don't care that i grew i still want a biscuit <laughs> but I, at the principle i totally agree with right yeah i think it's a start and i think at some point you know as they grow up they'll appreciate that because like when you realize like you can actually like affect that start to finish um I do believe like there is a point where hopefully I think more people are starting to appreciate that. And, you know, that's ultimately, I think how we're going to make change like long-term is like getting literally back in touch with that. We've become so disconnected from, I think where our food comes from that we kind of take it for granted. So eventually more people like realizing that I think is ultimately like the way forward as far as how, we make improvements in that way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. And what's remarkable me since I started growing, I've got like a tiny, like an eighth of an acre or something, right? Which I know is a lot more than if you're in an apartment, but I, I'm still amazed by how many different varieties you can grow. I mean, I'm growing, you know, spinach and carrots and broccoli. I've got, you know, plum trees and apple trees and pear trees and apricots and, you know, some North American pawpaw. It, it just goes... And you kind of get into it and you're like, oh, I could put something else there and something else there. It's, it's remarkable how quickly you can start growing a ton of different food. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's a really good point. Like, I don't think a lot of folks realize like you don't need a lot of space to mm. have like a garden that really flourishes. There's, um, oh man, the names. Oh no, here it's called Food Forest Abundance. Um, yeah. I think it's out of Florida here in the US. Mm. and literally what they do is they will work with people uh who you know have whatever space they have you know on their property you know they'd essentially send them you know like you know the blueprints of the property as far as that and what they do is they actually design what they call food forests for people so and they'll do it based on like where they live so they 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 work nationwide i don't think they're international but if if you know say i'm in new york and they're out of Florida, they'll actually, you know, tailor it towards not only the space I have, but like what species, what plants grow best in the Northeast of the United States, which is obviously a lot different than Florida, which is more, you know, of a tropical climate. So it, that I think is going to be really exciting. And I think more people are getting into converting like lawn spaces they have into places where they can grow some food. And I think kind of what, like you said, like once you get started, you realize, oh, wow, like I didn't realize like how much, you know, this small space can actually produce. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it it definitely, it definitely is wild. And I was also inspired by those guys, the food forest abundant guys. I've not, I've not like taken up their their service, but um, just that idea of like put a fruit tree and then grow strawberries underneath the fruit tree, right? Like, and the fact that fruit tends to be low, fairly low maintenance, right? It just, yeah, you water the tree once in, once in a while and it, it just kind of, it's just kind of there. And also, for, especially for me, for kids, like one of the, the highest hit rates I have of getting nutrition, good nutrition to kids is soft fruit. So it, it totally made sense for me uh, to go that route, yeah. Yeah, no, I, fruit, I think, you know, for me is like the easiest way to, I think, get people started. Like, for me, like what I've started doing more recently is like, obviously, like most people aren't ready to make that jump in their diet that quickly. Um, and, you know, obviously you have to manage expectations with that. But what I've been doing is like, hey, like, is there a way we can get like a pound of fruit in a day? 
I don't care how mm-hmm. you do it. It could be in a blender. It could be, you know, throughout your meals as snacks. Like, let's start there. Like, let's get a pound of fruit in a day and then we'll expand, you know, maybe to vegetables and then we'll focus on and cooked vegetables. And then let's talk about getting into like some more raw stuff, um, you know, and ideally like move to a space where like, you know, if we can get to a place, we could adopt something like a, a, a raw till four type of approach or something like that. Um, you know, as far What's as like, again, raw. raw. So some people will use, use like raw till four. So ideally, okay. like if you have a traditional three meals a day, two of them are probably raw. The last one could be like a cooked meal type of thing. Okay. Um, I you know, like so that. that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, someone mentioned that to me maybe like six months ago. I'm like, oh, I like that. I mean, the concept is straightforward, but I was like, oh, uh, and it, I just talked about it, but never using like that type of like terminology. Yeah. But I was like, oh, that's an interesting rule. But that, you know, again, for most people, the jump you're going from like a standard Western approach to that is leaps and bounds. And, and you know, you got to kind of take your steps with that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, makes sense. Um, we've talked a lot about plant, but something I, and I and I got a ton of benefits when I hit the raw vegan diet. And I experienced a lot of what you said, you know, my, my need for coffee went right. I had tons of energy. Um, I experienced all of that, but I was reading a, a study recently that was comparing different diets and they were pointing out that there are certain diets that are very high in meat content. And specifically the example was the Maasai and, and mm. in Kenya. Right. And I actually lived in Tanzania and I saw some Maasai and they looked like stunningly healthy. Right. And they're eating meat and milk. Um, and they also have very good you know, health outcomes, people on the, on those diets. And so it did have me wonder is, is the principle more, about just having whole foods and an unprocessed food, or is it about the the, the plant? You know, the plant co- sort of quotient. You know, what's your view? Yeah, on that? that's a good question. I, I actually want to ask you since you actually physically saw it. It sounds like so you spent some time with the Maasai. Oh, only like no, no. I didn't like go like live with them in the bush or anything. But I, you'd see them around. In fact, it was fucking terrifying the first time i saw a Maasai. i remember i went to a, a market i stayed in this place called moshi in the north of tanzania and the first time i went to a market there's this dude there you know with the traditional Maasai robes on and this giant and this you know just i don't know if it's a, a but anyway a huge spear and i was just absolutely terrified by this guy i mean he'd, yeah it was just the meanest looking guy i'd, I'd seen in my <laughs> life of course he yeah very friendly and all the rest of it but as like an 18 year old kid so I just remember being really impressed by like the, the stature and, and they've all got this just got the ones that I encountered, you know, this glowing skin and they just look super healthy. Totally. But um, as far as I'm aware, they're not eating any veg at all. See, okay. So that's, so that's interesting. Cause that's not my understanding of it. Cause mine is like, yes, like they're having some say like raw milk and meat, but like still primarily it's like a lot of, tubers and roots and stuff like oh, okay. that okay all right so maybe um, i'm and I'm that's always like a convenient detail i feel like is left out <laughs> okay. so you know like i mean there's stages to it and, and i'll put it this way is i think it's a very safe assumption that you know anything that is from nature that's unadulterated is going to be better than anything that's not and that's going to include if you want to stay in like the vegan realm the impossible meats and the beyond meats. Like if you had to ask me like which one I, I, I would say to have, I, I would take the, act, obviously the actual meat. You take uh, a steak over beyond burger, right? Uh, 100%. Like if you're getting something that's coming out of a lab, like do you're doing yourself, do yourself a favor and just leave it on the shelf. Um, it, it's not going to do you any good. And that's whether it's, you know, like a beyond burger or it's, you know, literally anything that you see at like your local supermarket. So I, I, in my opinion, that has to be step one is, is getting that stuff out, the, the man-made stuff out from there. I mean, look, like I just try to look, I try to take a step back and I believe at least in the, in the space of nutrition epidemiological studies i think hold a bit more weight because there's so many factors that go in you're never going to get someone to run like it you can't run a a random control trial with diet because people know what you can't blind them to what they're eating people know what they're eating so that's not going to happen so you know 
we have to kind of take a step back and see what's going on with that. And and I think also we kind of have to take a look back and understand like where our species as human beings kind of fit. And I think like we've gotten way too lost in this idea that like we're genetically so different from each other that we require different things. Whereas if you look at literally any other species on this planet, that that argument would not hold up. You do not see, you know, a chihuahua and a German shepherd. They're both dogs. They eat the same thing, maybe different amounts because they're different sizes, but they're still dogs. Like yeah. there's not, they're not eating a, a different diet. Um, you know, you don't see that with your house cat versus, you know, a cheetah versus a lion. You know, they're all within that same, you know, spectrum of species, that same family. So like when you're looking at humans and, you know, you trace it back again to different types, to the, the species that are most like Homo sapiens, those are going to be, you know, your monkeys and eight great apes, um, gorillas and the like. You know, you, you look at A, the structure of their digestive tract, B, the structure of their, their, their facial structure as far as jaw, the types of teeth they have, the appendages. Um, I mean. And that is where we're most similar. And then, you know, you see it. I mean, I see it. I mean, with the folks who are more plant forward and not indulging in the fake stuff, because we have to make that distinction. Yeah. Um, You know, these are people who generally don't get sick and don't struggle with the chronic diseases that that most suffer with. Now, in America, it's a little bit of a different issue because we have the, the bigger issue, at least compared to the EU. Um, with pesticide usage, herbicides, and all this stuff that's destroying our soil, which is mm. a, a la- another layer to the conversation, which is causing issues. But to me, like, again, like we're humans roughly are what 20,000 genes roughly make up a human being. Mm. And then you have to realize like your, your flea, little flea that you might find on your dog is has a, a genomic sequence of r- roughly like 30,000 genes. So a, a little flea is 50% more complex genetically than human beings. Right. So like you have to kind of like take a step back and realize like maybe this idea of like, oh, someone's from China is different from someone from Africa, like, et cetera. Like it's probably not as different as you think it is. And, and honestly, like what I've seen and what these larger epidemiological studies do is show that. Um, so yeah, like I don't, I don't believe, I believe there is an ideal approach for human beings. And, and, and last thing I want to cut, when we're talking about, you know, what are we, what is ideal for us? We have to kind of go, go back in time and realize like, okay, like as a human being, like what are the reasons that we have hands and arms instead of claws? Like, I don't know too many people without, a, a gun, a bow and arrow, or a knife who is going to chase down a deer w- without any tools, right. kill it, skin it again with their hands, and eat it raw. I, I know that's right. super graphic, yeah. but you have to, like, that is literally what, say, a, a, a bobcat or a cheetah or a lion do because they actually have the physical tools to do it. We don't have that. I mean, I've been scratched by a house cat before. I'm sure you have and a Mm. lot of people have like those tiny claws. They will draw blood. You're you're not going to do that with your with your nails. I know some people might have extensions. It's a different story. But (laughs) but generally speaking, (laughs) like you're not going to be. Yeah, we don't have appendages that are designed to tear flesh apart and, and rip it open and eat it. It's to grab and peel and you know, do things like that. So like, to me, I just think like we've gotten this like idea of going into science, like so much. And this like almost pseudo intellectual approach of like looking at things a certain way where like, we've gone so far down the microscope that we're missing. Like the big obvious thing is just like observing what every other species does. And I mean, I think it's gotten us to a point. Well, it's gotten us to a point where like, you know, chronic disease, at least here in America, accounts for 80 percent of the expenditure as far as healthcare costs. Right. And 
the large percentage of that, I'd say at least 90% of it is completely avoidable or reversible. So, you know, unfortunately people don't want to hear that, you know, food is very emotional. Uh, like people have emotional attachments to foods, uh, things like dairy, for example, are actually addicting. So I get it. Like it, they have addictive qualities to it. So, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, might be an addict. That's okay. You know, a lot of people are caffeine addicts. That's, that's okay. Uh, you know, it's first, the first step in any of this is acknowledging it. Right. So, you know, you have to get there first before you can start working through it. So I I honestly don't think, you know, there should be a lot of diversity from human to human. Obviously where you live is going to dictate that, um, to some degree, but it, 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 shouldn't this idea that like different people thrive on different things there's explanations for it as far as why people do better at certain things at certain time but usually those are gut issues that are either unresolved or just unknown at a given time or not realized yeah i mean that's that's very interesting because because i do see it as a bit of a trend right now is like you know you do these tests online and check your you know your if you're more mediterranean you should be having this if you're more northern european origin you should have this etc but yeah it's interesting. You're not buying any of that. I don't. It just doesn't make sense. You wouldn't do that for your dog. You wouldn't do that for your cat. Like it just. It to me, like I just think it, it's it sounds great because it makes you seem special or or inclusive to like a specific thing. And I think as human beings, we have a a desire to be part of a group. We are tribal. I think by nature, we want to be right. included in something. And when you're not included in something, it feels terrible. So, you know, I, I do think there's always that instinctual kind of nature and, you know, it always sounds nice. Like everyone wants to hear, you know, that they kind of, I think stand out or are different in a way. But I think in this case, again, like I see it all the time, like the folks who buy in and do it, they, they get better and they get better. Like, Pretty quickly. Um, what about the, the the argument that we've evolved? Right, we have evolved to use tools, and you know, we've evolved to use spears and knives and etc. Uh, and so, have our digestive systems and not evolved simultaneously to allow us to make the most of those new foods uh, that we could get? Mm, I haven't seen it as far as like the amount of change in the given amount of time. I mean, even if I, I don't think a lot of folks appreciate like how long it takes for those genetic changes to actually manifest from generation to generation. Um, again, like this is the concept here in the United States, um, you know, with let's take, you know, glyphosate for one example. So we've had this explosion since early two thousands in things like type one diabetes in autoimmune diseases uh, gluten sensitivity. Uh, these things were essentially non-existent before the nineties. So you can't tell me that like, you know, there's been some radical genetic shift in just America and more modernized countries and not anywhere else that, you know, is just kind of taking place. I think we have to understand that like the environment is much more important than the actual genetic code itself. Um, and again, if you want to just put, take this in the context, a, a flea is 50% more uh, complex than we are. So hopefully, you know, at least that argument that brings some humility to that argument, because while it's interesting for certain things, it's still largely dictated by what the environment is. Right, right, right. Um, something you get into it- in in your in your book, which I which I appreciated, and I hadn't really um, considered before, is you <clears throat> you enumerate the the different tastes, right? The the bitter, sour, sweet, salty, and umami, which I'd never heard of before. Um, yeah, what's the importance of of that? And uh, you know, and how how can we kind of use an understanding of that in our in our diets and you know what we make? Yeah, um, well. I think one of the biggest things like in in shifting to a more plant forward approach is the first question is like, well, what am I going to eat? So, and then the, the, the first follow-up to that is, well, how this is going to be bland. This is going to be boring. This is not going to taste good. And you know what? Like if you sit there and just steam broccoli and put nothing on it, 
yeah, I probably wouldn't eat it either. So, <laughs> I mean, we have to like expand our, our toolkit and our, our ability with like what we can do in the kitchen. And, and the goal is to get more creative with it. So kind of in the book, like what I mentioned is there's five, as you kind of alluded to, there's five major flavor profiles. You have flavors, sweet, yeah, you no, have salt, tasty. you have bitter, you have umami and you have tangy or sour. So there's sour. five. Mm. Most meals, I would say that people make probably encompass like two of those. Usually it's going to be salty or sweet. Usually. If not one, it's both. The other three are where more, I think, more finesse comes in. And and it's how you take, you know, cooking something that's like average to something that's actually good. Or even great. Or like what you would consider like a restaurant quality. And what's good and how you find that is how do you find a blending of like all five of those in something that you can make at home and obviously like they don't need to be even but elements of them i think should be there if you want to make something that's enjoyable so you know if i'm trying to think of like an example that would like make this worthwhile here so what's a super tasty meal that's 80 percent plant or mainly plants that someone like me could like knock up in like 15 minutes at home Okay, great. So let's so let's talk about this. So if you wanted to do, say, like a, a vegetable stir fry, that's something you could do very quickly. You know, you can get the salty very easily from, say, something using like uh, uh, tamari or something as like a base for a sauce. You can add a sweet component. You know, you can add uh, orange juice. You can add, uh, you know, you, I, sometimes I'll use a freshly squeezed orange. Sometimes I'll use honey. Uh, you can add an acidic component with something like rice wine vinegar, or you can use lime, you know, something to bring an acidic component. Uh, maybe you might want to use miso paste or mushrooms to bring like that meaty, like umami flavor. And and mushrooms are great because they take up a lot of flavor really well. So and that's what not, umami means, right? I had to, it's more of like a meaty kind of yeah. flavor. That's usually the thing I think most people miss if they if they're trying to get more plants in is that meaty type of flavor. Mushrooms, just by the way, are, are great for that. But let's say let's add mushrooms to that to kind of give that sort of flavor, that feel. And then bitter, you know, maybe you top it with uh, scallions or spring onions or cilantro or something. Maybe not necessarily bitter, but something that brings like a fresh bite to it. Right. Um, so you have like a sauce that brings a couple of components. You have some of the ingredients themselves. In this case, the mushrooms that could bring some of those components. Uh, maybe bell peppers are sweet, so that it could bring like a sweet component um, to like you could really get creative with it. And, you know, they, you bring a bitter component again with maybe different herbs or different spices that you can add. And and that's how you like start blending it together, I think, in a way that makes sense. Or like you could add like, you know, fresh radishes or like pickled radishes that are a little bit bitter and a little bit like tangy as like a topping. So like. And that's something you could do on the side that would take you 15 minutes to quick pickle radishes or something like that. Right. So you can get like all five of those and you'll realize, oh, wow, like these are actually like touching like all those points that I kind of want to touch when I'm cooking. And to me like that, that is ultimately that framework is kind of like what I use if I'm going to cook a meal, like how I go into it. Yeah, and I, I, I can immediately see how how valuable that would be because because i think when i make salads salads i have this like rule if i just as many different ingredients as possible i know it's going to improve the flavor but i'd never considered it through through this this lens yeah and you don't have to hit all five in every meal but and obviously probably one or two are going to stick out more but when you add in a fourth a third and fourth and if you could touch on a fifth great that's how you take, again, something that's like all right and good to something that's great. And a lot of that can happen either through adding like a homemade sauce or a dressing um, or just maybe like a, a fresh component to something that's cooked or a slightly cooked component to something that's fresh. And you get like a whole different kind of take on it. Right, right, right. Um, something else I wanted to ask you was uh, organic. Right? <laughs> how important... Because, again, this is something I've experienced like pre and post kids, like pre 
kids and it was basically just me I was worried about. I was like super strict and organic. Like since kids, it's 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 much harder. Like I'm probably down to like, I don't know, 50% organic from whereas before I was probably like 99% organic. Um, so again, I'm going to speak to the American numbers here because yeah. that's where I am. So it, it's going to be a little bit different for you. Um, and honestly, I know it's better, but I don't know. I, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm an expert as far as like right. how, like to yeah. what degree, because I don't know. Uh, but I do know, I will say I've had patients who go to and friends, family, et cetera. They'll go to Italy or France and they'll have bread or pastas, whatever. And they'll come back and they'll be like, oh, well, I never I didn't have any of the digestive issues I normally have, you know, here in America. That happens all the time. So there's definitely a, a, a difference as far as what's going in the food. Uh, what I will say here in America is, you know, a lot of it goes back to, believe it or not, like the World War II and actually before that, World War One. So there were a lot of uh, petroleum, essentially products that were going to be used for weapons, et cetera, uh, that ended up, you know, not being used. So we had this stockpile of petroleum goods, et cetera. What happened was over time, um, you know, these chemical companies, uh, you know, DuPont, Monsanto, et cetera, they needed something to do with these. They found that some of them had nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium in them. And they started using these petroleum based products to make fertilizers. Over time, that led to initially like the Dust Bowl, which was a big thing in kind of like middle America uh, back. This was in like right. the 40s. Um, and, you know, they basically eroded all this topsoil, making it essentially impossible to grow anything on. So what happened was, again, they kind of went back after World War II and started coming up with things like pesticides. This was like DDT. This was Agent Orange. These are now kind of out of circulation. Now we're dealing with things like glyphosate, which are similar, but causing a lot of the same issues uh, for a few things. One is. Any herbicide, pesticide, et cetera, is going to uh, affect the microbiome of the soil itself. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, the earthworms or the bacteria or fungi, et cetera, that are there, those are going to be negatively affected. It's going to decrease the, the diversity of, of, of those places. And what happens is the plants themselves are going to not be as healthy as a result this led to pests coming in you know different bugs etc so now you bring pesticides in and and what this is doing they're essentially making them resistant to certain bacteria etc and what's happening now is now we're consuming it and things like glyphosate which was by the way patented as an antibiotic is now being consumed by most people every day so even though we know that over, again, in America, 50%, at least 50% of antibiotic scripts are unnecessary and are going to cause harm to the gut microbiome. Um, even if you're not taking them, if you're having conventional foods here in America that are sprayed with this stuff and you're not cleaning it, you're consuming like low grades of antibiotics every day. And if you think it's better in animals, it's not because A, they're getting injected with hormones or antibiotics themselves. And not only that, they're eating the GMO corn that was sprayed with all this stuff anyway. It's in the feed. Right. So either so either they're getting it and you're getting it secondhand or you're getting it firsthand from the conventional food supply. So, again, it shouldn't be a surprise if you're constantly consuming low grades of, of antibiotics. Now we're seeing this explosion of autoimmune diseases, uh, food sensitivities, um, a lot of immune system issues when... Again, we're constantly being medicated, essentially, on that front if you're consuming those foods. So is it important? Um, I, I would say, like, at this point, like, that should be, like, the bare minimum. There is a movement now that are that is there are farmers that are trying to break away and, and go towards a more regenerative approach where they're doing crop rotation, where they're not using any of these, you know, fertilizers or chemical pesticides at all. and, and what happens is they kind of need a, a few years to transition. And that's sometimes tough because at least here in America, a lot of these farmers are incentivized to do it the way they tell you to do it. And 
again, we're seeing this explosion of autoimmune diseases, diabetes, uh, like like it just goes on and on. Like there are now peanut free days at baseball games. And I'm sure, you know, you probably didn't know anyone your age who had a peanut allergy when you were in school. Like now they can't even serve them in some schools. So that's not a genetic, you know, adaptation. Yeah. That's an, that's an <laughs> environmental problem yeah. that, we, that, you know, we need to figure out here. And I think we are, we have figured out. It's just, it, it's so entra- entrenched in the political interest and, and the folks who run these larger food industries and agricultural industries, it's essentially a revolving door with the people who regulate these mm-hmm. industries. So they'll go from the private sector to the government and then back. And on both sides of the political aisle, like they're both just going along with it. So it's going to, it's at a point now where like the individual person farmer has to go out of their way, likely pay a little bit more to get to that point. Um, because we're seeing, you know, it, it's no surprise. I think that with, with the destruction of the soil, we're seeing essentially the destruction of human health and it, and the destruction of the human microbiome in that sense, it's like fractal, right? So we have our own terrain soil inside of us, if you will, um, that's being disrupted because of what we're doing to our actual soil. And we're seeing it now affect, I think, people on, on the global level. And, you know, if we continue down this path, it's going to be a dangerous path. It's going to be a in an interesting next 30, 40 years. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Zach Bush at all, but I think he's no. it, it, he's talked about, you know, if we continue down this idea of monocropping and pesticides and um, kind of doing things in the conventional way that we're doing, like the soil, at least here in America, is only going to be good for like 50 to 60 more harvests. And that's it. Like it, if we're not going back to doing it the way we were doing it before the Industrial Revolution, we're, we're in a lot of trouble here. So luckily, more people are waking up to this, um, but it, it takes it's not going to happen at the high level of politics. Like it has to be done at the individual level. Right. And so for you, it's a it's a hard no to anything that's not organic. Is that is that where you're at? Uh, as much as I can. I mean, oh, you right. know, I would never buy it myself. Um, you know, obviously there's going to be a time or two where I'm, you know, going out to a dinner or I'm at someone else's house and, you know, you, you know, you kind of do the best you can, you plan around it. Um, but you know, uh, but you know, you can, I think once you're in tune and you, and you realize it, um, it is something I think most people are more aware of and aware too. like, once you're like, oh, well, you kind of notice it a little bit more. So I do my best to get to 100%. I'm not going to say I'm there because just sometimes real life gets in the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, at least 90%. And usually it's closer to like 95 plus. That's what right, I'm right. And then do you do you watch when you do find – I sorry, you said you never buy it, right? Because I have seen a lot of that online is like people – baking soda and different techniques to, to wash the non-organic. Yeah, yeah. so generally speaking, if you want just like a quick recipe, you could take like – room temperature water um in you know a large bowl or a bucket or whatever you have um you add some baking soda and vinegar so white vinegar some people will use lime instead of vinegar but i thought vinegar is fine kind of let it sit for 15 20 minutes depending on on the type of fruit or or vegetable and then you just kind of rinse it quick under tap water and and that's an easy way to kind of get rid of it yeah Right, right, right. And that's, I guess, taking anything off the skin. You, you can't solve what's inside it, right? But that's, that's, that's a good, uh, good, good approach, isn't it? Great. Um, well, I know you've got to jump to another, to, to another appointment soon. And we didn't get into the, the breath work and the potato <laughs> method. Maybe we'll have to, to save that for another show. Cause, uh, Absolutely, we could do that, uh, for sure. Yeah, fascinated <laughs> uh, by that. Um, but yeah, there's just been a there's just been a wealth um, of information here, and uh, for anybody out there interested, definitely get the book. Yeah, it's got a, it's got just a ton of practical stuff in there, and you know, it's a, it's almost like it's a, it's a compendium as well about you know really easy to read detail on um, the whole host of different foods and you know and and components and food, and you really break down technically, you know what what's inside what we eat. So I really appreciated that that book 
Well, thank you. That was the goal. So I'm glad that came across. Yeah. Yeah. And immediately, and you've got stuff to apply immediately, like the, the five flavors point. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I'm guessing for all experienced chefs, you know, maybe they may be more familiar with it, but there's going to be a ton of people like me who just aren't that interested in cooking, but this is going to help. That's the yeah. goal. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so yeah, tell people, for people who want to, yeah, um, get the book, you know, take your programs, you've got breathwork programs, you've got, um, I know you've got other, other, other programs on your site. Yeah. Where, where would you send them? Yeah. So the easiest way is to either just get in touch with me, um, either on, uh, Instagram or YouTube, which is just at Dr. Vincent Esposito, Dr. Vincent Esposito. Um, all my stuff is there. You could either find it linked on, um, you know, in the links in my bio and stuff, yeah. or you could just message me and I'll kind of help point you in the right direction. You do that too. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll put, put the links to all of that in the, in the show notes. Well, uh, thank you once again. This is, this has been fantastic. I've really appreciated your, your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It was an absolute no. pleasure. We'll do it again. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.